Welcome to DLA Piper's Tech Law Podcast Series with me, Chloe Forster, a technology lawyer at global law firm DLA Piper. Welcome to today's podcast in which I and an eminent industry executive will be exploring how the future is already here, given the profound impact that rapid advancements in technology are having across all industries, and in particular, the financial services sector and the public sector, whether that's in the context of the Internet of Things, artificial intelligence, robotic process automation, or blockchain. This forms part of our preparation for our widely acclaimed DLA Piper European Technology Summit 2019, scheduled for Tuesday the 15th of October at ETC venues, 155 Bishopsgate, London. Do look out for further details on this major biennial conference via DLA Piper's social media channels. It's attended by over 350 senior legal and commercial executives as the event day's programme will include panel discussions on both digital transformation and fintech. Whilst I am a lawyer in our technology transactions and strategic sourcing group, advising on complex and strategic technology and sourcing transactions, here I extend a special welcome to Gary Barnett, Chief Analyst, Technology Thematic Research at Global Data PLC, a leading market intelligence company who've been helping over 4,000 organisations worldwide make better and more timely decisions. I think for any organisation that is looking at deploying an AI solution, thinking about what it needs to do, there are a number of different things that it needs to grapple with. The first being actually looking at the data it has. Is that data you know, appropriate for using in that, that context? Is, is it going to actually generate an output that is, is going to work? But I think the second thing is actually thinking about the auditability of decision-making, because particularly in a regulated environment, you need to be able to have that level of oversight and control and how we can achieve that through uh, working with AI partners I think is a really important point for for banks for public sectors organizations to get their heads around when thinking about digital transformation it's it's huge and 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 there are a number of things at play here one if we introduce new tools that enable people to quickly change processes there's a good chance people will use them to quickly change processes and you could find yourself from a compliance perspective believing that you do something a certain way but in fact that's now been changed three or four times and we now do something in an entirely different way but you're still the person who has to put the black and white stripy jumpsuit on and go to prison if you've suddenly discovered a a different a better way of calculating APR you know so putting in processes that say we want you to we you know we obviously want you to to change we want you to do constantly thinking about transformation and we don't want to be a barrier but you do have to tell a grown-up if you make a change because there are consequences, you know, there are wider consequences. And this whole question of governance is really interesting because, again, you know, you'll know the answer to this. If I'm speaking at a conference and I ask people, do they feel joy in their hearts or do they feel doom and gloom when they see that it's governance calling? Okay, <laughs> a call from governance is very rarely, you know, something that produces a, a feeling and of elation. Well. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, yeah, oh Jesus, it's legal. Yeah. Um, um, and, and, you know, some of the work that I do is, is, is actually saying, working with people in data governance, and indeed, for example, I did a lot of work around GDPR, mm-hmm. and, I, and I spent a lot of time working with lawyers on that, saying, right, let's see if we can position you not as the baddie, but as the person who's actually going to help people achieve the outcome that they need to achieve. And it's that, can you, can you flip some of these functions from the perception that they are bureaucrats, and my definition of a bureaucrat is someone who has more power to say no than they have to say yes, to someone who is actually genuinely an enabler 
Yeah. Because believe it or not, and I'm not just saying this, most lawyers I meet are actually nice human beings who genuinely want their organisation to be successful. I know, crazy as it sounds, but that's been my experience. And the same is true of data governance folks. Yeah. You know, they don't get out of, out of bed in the morning going, right, whose day can I ruin today? You know, they, they genuinely want the organisation to be successful and it's helping rehabilitate that. And I think that's a really interesting point because I think having spoken to many clients about the subject of GDPR, one of the real benefits I think that's come out of it is a much greater appreciation about the data that sits within an organization and the opportunities it creates which I think a number of businesses hadn't really got their heads around previously understanding the data flows that exist and the the data that resides in in an organization has I think opened up people's eyes to the possibilities and that in itself creates a platform which AI can then be built upon absolutely and i mean you're, you're, you're pressing on a massive hot button for me which was when we got through sort of halfway through last year and people sort of you know realized this gdpr thing had to be done yep. um <laughs> there were kind of two approaches there was the can we do the bare minimum we need to do to kind of just kind of limbo under the pole and then there were you know there was a much more enlightened view which said wait a sec yeah this idea of knowing what we know this idea of knowing where the data is in our organization Actually, that's a probably a really cool thing. And, and the scary thing is how many organizations did not know. If you asked an organization, so where is your customer data stored? They, you know, they'd say, well, it's all stored in the CRM system, isn't it? So you, it's all of it stored there. And are you sure? And, you know, what about marketing? How, much, how, how many weird databases do the marketing folk have? And, and what about in fulfillment and dispatch? You know, can you promise me they don't have a secret squirrel database that's that, that got, got tons of names and addresses in? And how, how many of those are different? And how many of those are um, aligned? And I saw lights go on. And this, this, sim- this simple act of having to create this asset register of actually caused many organizations to discover things about what they knew as organizations that, that they simply didn't know before. And, and, you know, you could kind of tut a few times because surely they should have, but let's set that aside. Now that they, now that they do, of course, now that they know that, kind of the next step is, okay, now that you're aware that you have these challenges, the next step is, are you smart enough, agile enough, and committed enough to do the next obvious thing, which is to say, okay, let's simplify this or consolidate it mm-hmm. or make it more rational and and again some of my clients are really embracing that some of my clients are still struggling frankly with you know with that first step of really understanding what they've got yeah and I, th- I think there is whilst people are perhaps aware of the opportunities there's also a slight conservatism with a small c around the risks associated with using data in that way and a, a nervousness around cybersecurity, around data breaches which is perhaps slightly inhibiting what what organizations are prepared to do and at the moment in a number of clients you see that sort of wrestling as to which way they they want to go there's a balance of forces at play here because in truth the 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 general counsel in an organization is employed to to worry all the time about risk they are not employed to bring joy and change to the organization you know the 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 primary role of of, of the corporate lawyer is to understand risk so there's that i'm going to bring the risk story to this table and and so there's work to be done to recast that and say you know can we talk less about the doom and gloom and talk more about you know the 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 countermeasures and mitigations that we can do absolutely i spent a good chunk of my career managing software developers software developers 
are a little bit like laboratory rats. If they're given a red button, which when they press it gives them a sweetie, they'll just keep pressing the red button. If that's spinning up another instance on a cloud server and throwing more customer data onto it so they can play with it, they'll do that many, many times. And we know that that kind of behavior is eventually a recipe for embarrassment and potentially disaster. So it's, it's how do we bring those two competing perspectives, the sort of glasses half full, glasses half empty perspective together in a meaningful way. And I think that what that really comes to and something I feel really passionate about is actually understanding the technology and how it works. I think as a, as a, as a lawyer, as an advisor to an organisation that's thinking of deploying um, these technologies, you have to understand how they work to be able to fully advise on and help mitigate against the risk, whether it's through a contract, whether it's through the steps that an organisation will place around, how it uses them. And that kind of really underpins what I think both of us try and achieve through the advisory work no, we do. Particularly in the context of security. Well, mm. If we take cyber security, in the Internet of Things, security of, of all of those devices is, is, is a massively, massively concerning thing. Mm -hmm. A couple of years ago, a, I think it was a, uh, a New Jersey casino lost terabytes of customer data because someone had hacked into their main system via the computer that controlled the fish tank. How mad is that? And there are a couple of things at play here. One, despite what people will say, security is surprisingly easy to implement if you think about it at the beginning of your project. Mm -hmm. It is really, really difficult to implement if you think about it, the day before your project is due to go live. If you're thinking about a major di um, digital transformation, particularly, for example, in any regulated in industry, yeah. financial services or healthcare or, or the public sector, you know, in the UK public sector, in, in social services departments, in, 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 in any department where vulnerable people are involved, you know, you've got massive data sensitivity there for very, very rational and understandable reasons. On the other hand, the tragedies that happen in failures in safeguarding are almost always, and I, and I say that almost without exception, a result of poor data sharing and integration. In any of these tragedies that have happened in the last two decades, at least two agencies knew there was a problem, but all five didn't. So you have this desperate mandate to keep things secure, private, confidential, but you've got a real mandate to properly and effectively and appropriately share data and intelligence. Of course, those two conflict with one another. So how do we, how do we wrestle with those challenges? And the first thing I would say is, if you're defining your future digital strategy and you're, you're defining your future digital platform, why not get someone from the legal department in at the beginning of the conversation to define some of those core values and standards that you're going to incorporate. I've got this very strong view about governance. There's a spectrum of governance that, that you see in organizations. At one end of the spectrum is the Dalai Lama school of governance, where someone posits these principles and assumes that everyone is going to be so moved by their rightness that they will be incapable of, 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 of violating those principles. At the other end of the spectrum, there is the Stalin school of governance, which sort of, you know, publishes this list of a thousand you know rules you must follow and failure to follow them means you go to the salt mines and we know that that doesn't work somewhere in the middle is what i call the super nanny school of governance i don't know if you if, if, if you've ever seen the tv program super nanny but essentially this amazing combination of nanny and child psychologist and she does it uh, using a very simple process which is once she makes her expectations clear which goes back to what we were talking about leadership yeah be clear about what yeah. you expect from people Two, she keeps the number of rules down to an absolute minimum. 
But that small number of rules are governed completely consistently. So if on Monday, breaking that rule means you go to the naughty step, Tuesday, if you break that rule, you go to the naughty step. Absolute consistent application of rules. So when I talk to people about defining this digital strategy or trying to make technology choices, mm -hmm. say, let's keep the number of rules that we make to a bare minimum. But let's talk about the things we won't joke about. We're not going to joke about privacy. Mm -hmm. We're not going to joke about audit. We're not going to joke about data quality. Because these are things where someone gets fired if they go wrong, or potentially even someone goes to jail if, um, if they go wrong. So let's embed those into the technology choices that we make. So no, we're not going to have our stuff hosted in, in you know, s strange, you know, in North Korea. Um, because there are, you know, there are issues with North Korea or some parts of the of, of former Soviet Union. And indeed, there are laws that dictate that, you know, for, for most personal data, it needs to be domiciled somewhere in Europe, ideally. And, and, and so let's just set that as a rule and let's not argue about it anymore. It's just a rule. What colour, what shade of pastel you want on the background of the website, you know, I don't mind. Fill your boots. You know, <laughs> I'm not going to make a rule about that. I mean, marketing might want to make a rule about that. But keep the number of key rules to, to a minimum, mm -hmm. you know. And, and for me, it, it's, it's nearly always where the data is going to be held, who's going to hold the data, who's going to have access to the data, what security mechanisms we have in place. I don't want you inventing a better way of doing the login because I've worried, you know, if I've committed to Microsoft's platform and I'm using Office 365, let's use their login. It's tested, you mm -hmm. know. Millions of people use it. Or if I've decided to use Google or, or whoever it is, I don't mind as long as we pick one and we use it consistently. For example, and we see this all the time in procurement. The two last people who get involved in procurements, many, on, on many occasions I've witnessed, are the legal folk and the technical folk. So they've got three-quarters of the way, and perhaps 90% of the way through this procurement, and said, yeah, we totally want this product. Mad Jack McClavity's CRM system is the one for us. And then finally, we, we, oh, yeah, God, yeah, we've got to ask those, those idiots in legal, and we've got to ask those <laughs> idiots in, in, in enterprise architecture, and they're just going to be a pain, aren't they? So, you know, you shuffle in, they shove it under you, and you go, well, actually, no, Mad Jack McClavity's, you know, he's, he's domiciled in, you know, in North Korea. We can't put our data there, you know. We could have helped you with this months ago. Yeah. Or the technical architects will say, no, you know, he's using an operating system that you know, isn't supported in Europe anymore. You know? and, and if we were all involved early in the, in, earlier in that process, we could sort of say, right, you're thinking about procuring. Right, here are the five quick questions you need to ask, and that will help you filter out. And, and we'll provide you with the tools and, 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 and the ability yeah. to make some of these. And yes, we do still have to look at it, because we, depending on our role within the organisation, we, you know, we might have an absolute professional obligation to check, audit, or govern a part of the process. So we can't skip that, but let's make you as ready for that process as possible, and let's help you do it, rather than just be the, the, the sort of miserable, mustachioed border guard who stamps, you know, not permitted. And I think part of the challenge for us as, as advisors is to, is to make sure that people understand that we are, like you said earlier, enablers, not blockers, and having that understanding, appreciation of the, the way that digital transformation is going, I think is really fundamental to that. So looking now at the public sector specifically, I think you work with uh, public sector organisations on digital transformation strategies, Gary, including the deployment of IoT-related technologies and with respect to future cities. What are the key forces stimulating digital transformation in that realm, and where do you see the most traction in the near to medium term? The UK public sector is a fount of knowledge and experience when it comes to digital transformation because they've, they've, they've had to do this since 2007. Austerity has led to very significant cuts in, 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 in budgets, which has driven this, this real imperative to change. The good news is that they've been doing this since 
2007. So they have a decade of experience. So they've learned a lot of lessons. And the key lessons that have been learned are, one, digital transformation is not a new color scheme for your website and curvy corners on your boxes on your forms. It's about digging deeper into the business processes and, and, and the services that you provide. So that first era of digital transformation was, was very much about let's, let's brighten up the website. And they realized quite quickly that that's actually not driving significant amounts of saving or indeed significant amounts of customer satisfaction either, interestingly enough. So they've gone through that phase and they now understand that, yes, you have to reach deeper into your processes and really modernize and, and, and transform those. And the other important lessons that have been learned, and this is particularly true are particularly applicable for organizations that, that are trying to build a digital transformation program or st- starting to ramp up their capability is, one, going for the low-hanging fruit teaches you nothing about how to get high-hanging fruit. Mm-hmm. So that classic thing that, that I've done in the past, which is let's get the ho- low-hanging fruit first. Let's, you know, let's deliver stuff and make our users delighted. It's really great. And they, you train them to expect something new and awesome every four weeks and then you get to the harder stuff and you have to go back to them and say well this will be three months now and and then you get to the really hard stuff together this might be 12 months now and all the excitement gets drained away so one really important key piece of advice is always pick a couple of low-hanging fruit projects a couple of middle tier fruit projects and a couple of high-hanging fruit projects Mm -hmm. at the beginning because by the time you run out of low-hanging fruit you'll be delivering on some of those those medium and those um, some of those very hard ones the other lesson, that clarity of purpose, purpose and leadership. The other one, and this is germane to the public sector, very, very germane to uh, the financial services sector as well, is whether you like it or not, all that legacy is there. I was at a conference a couple of years ago. I actually had to be ushered out by a colleague because she was afraid that I might storm the stage in my, in my anger and rage. And this digital transformation guru was just sort of prowling around the stage. And, and he said, you've just got to turn the legacy off. As if there was a magic off button that we could all press to erase all that complexity and and all those legacy processes. And what was equally disturbing to me at the time was that half the audience reached for their notebooks and was evidently writing, must turn legacy off. Meanwhile, the other half of the audience was burying their face in their hands going, what an idiot. You know, this, this stuff is really difficult. Legacy is there. You can't just turn it off. You need to have a strategy. Mm-hmm. I'm absolutely open to the idea that part of that strategy might be the ultimate replacement of that legacy or the ultimate switching off of that legacy. Sure. But you can't just unplug it today. Yeah. You've got to have a plan. So, you know, legacy is, is, is something that, you know, there's no point in denying. It's there. Let's make the best of it. There are some cases, I would certainly assert, where actually there's no reason why that legacy application should be replaced. Mm -hmm. In some cases, the only truly reliable and functional part of a core business operation is the rubbish legacy application that we all whine about. It's actually all the nonsense we've we've wrapped around it that that, that, that causes the the problem. So high-hanging fruit, legacy, clarity of purpose. And this is something slightly unique to the UK public sector, which is a little harder for other sectors to do but I don't think it's impossible the thing that I personally have enjoyed the most about working with public sector organizations is their willingness to collaborate and share with one another it's very easy in fact to get people from three or four of the London boroughs to spend a day together Mm -hmm. talking about the common problem slightly harder Mm -hmm. to get three highly competing investment banks to send their top architects to a room for a day to chat about what's going on but you know it's not impossible so for example at global data we we run chatham house rule breakfasts where we invite a very carefully selected group of people Mm. to spend a morning talking you can have 
very, very adult and, and constructive conversations by talking, talking and engaging with peers. And provided you do that appropriately, and you know, it's it's one of those classic things. Just as every financial organisation should have, you know, a sensible blogging and social media policy that you know provides a sensible set of guidelines about what it's appropriate to to, to publish about your organisation's plans. You should have a sensible and common sense collaboration and conference participation policy, which says here are the things that you know it's perfectly okay for you to talk about here are the things where you might need to run it by us here are the things where you know you absolutely shouldn't be disclosing outside the organization because there's a lot of value to be had from 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 collaboration and one of the real highlights for me of working in the public sector is we were able to create a community of 100 or so people among the london boroughs Mm -hmm. every two months we would hold a half day event we'd get 30 or so of that that group of 100 to come and share and it wasn't about selling global data services. It wasn't about pushing a particular agenda. It was about just getting people together to share their experiences. And I think that's, you know, that, that's a real highlight for me. And that's a lesson that we need to figure out how to apply. It's a really interesting point because one of the things that, that I spend quite a lot of time talking with clients about is a similar point, albeit a slightly different one, which is actually long gone, I think, are the days where a customer side client can effectively appoint a supplier and, and say to them, okay, over to you, this is what you need to deliver, go and knock your socks off. I think nowadays, actually, customer side clients and supplier side clients need to collaborate. There needs to be a, a joint planning process before you embark upon any of these things and everyone needs to understand what is expected of them to be able to deliver. So that collaboration, I think, needs to pervade into actually the delivery side as well with the projects and working with your suppliers. If you look at the existing contracts for supply that we have in place, we'd have to agree that most of them are not fit for that kind of change in body language and and change in engagement. And how you contract for the the elements of service delivery that actually might be extremely well-defined and we might treat it as a utility service versus those elements where, in fact, we're talking about innovation and experimentation. Mm. So we're talking about doing stuff together where there is an expectation that some of this is th- the stuff is going to fail. Some of this isn't going to work. And in fact, discovering that it isn't going to work, having only spent ten or £20,000, is an awful lot better than discovering it's not going to work after you've spent ten or £20 million. Pounds. It places both the procurer of the services and the supplier of the services in quite an interesting position. So, you know, if I'm a, a large systems integrator, A, I have a P&L that I have to carry. Um, so... I can't just throw loads of free consultants at you to do this innovation workshop and so on. I have to be able to at least explain to my boss what the potential future commercial upside is to that. So we do need to have, you know, a grown-up conversation. And I think one thing I'd encourage the legal profession to do is actually to, to show some leadership and provide some frameworks early on and to actually show the way a little bit more because I think a lot of people are, are quite bewildered and a little bit terrified. Yeah, and I think it's I think it's really important actually, and that's one of the things that we're doing a lot here at DLA Piper is working with our clients to actually identify the IPR frameworks that they're going to put in place for contracting for AI, for contracting for these digital transformation technologies. And AI is really interesting, particularly particularly in the context of of IP, because I write some really good AI tech. You have it. You discover something. Who gets? Who gets? Absolutely. And I think the f- finding the balance of where that lies within the market is a real uh, focus for the legal profession at the moment. 
Thanks to Gary Barnett, Chief Analyst, Technology and Thematic Research at Global Data PSC, for sharing his insights on the profound impact that rapid advancements in technology are having across all industries, and in particular, the financial services and public sector. Do look out for further podcasts from the global business law firm DLA Piper as we explore the influence of regulation and emerging technologies in business on wider society. Several podcasts, including ones focusing on fintech, food technology, robotics and automation, artificial intelligence, cybersecurity, crowdfunding, retail tech, human rights and cloud computing are already available for you to listen to on our website or maybe accessed via the Apple Podcast app or SoundCloud as well as other apps and services for Android and other phones. Do also note that we will, on Tuesday the 15th of October at ETC Venues, 155 Bishopsgate, London, be hosting our widely acclaimed DLA Piper European Technology Summit 2019 a major biennial conference attended by over 350 senior legal and commercial executives. We're looking forward to eminent industry executives joining us for various panel discussions throughout this full-day event, at which I will be moderating a panel under the banner of Revitalising Retail, How Tech is Shaping the Future of Retail, and Global Data's Gary Barnett is set to feature on a panel headlined Beyond Digital Transformation, which will be moderated by my colleague Paul Allen. Do follow DLA Piper on our social media channels and look out for further details due to be published soon, allowing you to register to join us for that exciting full day, exploring a variety of aspects on digital transformation and emerging technologies across multiple industries with eminent industry leaders. Thank you from me, Chloe Forster, technology lawyer at global law firm DLA Piper.